0: Disruption Zone. Opportunity lives where the status quo dies. Talking to the greatest innovators, disruptors, and off-the-wall inventors, we can scrounge up. You laugh. You will learn. You'll be inspired. Now,
1: here are your hosts, Leland Conway and Cameron Mills. All right, guys. Fun, wide-ranging conversation today with my friend Josh Crawford from the Pegasus Institute. Check out their website at PegasusKentucky.org for information. You know what we need in America? We need solutions. We need to quit fighting with each other and have some daggum solutions. That's what we need. And you can't do that until you start talking about stuff and you start drilling down to the truth. And that is essentially the mission of the Pegasus Institute, to drill down to the truth and then find ways that we can find common ground and fix big problems. So we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today. Our dogs cancel culture the popo and reforming the popo and the high murder rate in louisville and across the country and defund the police and how stupid an idea that is uh and we're going to talk about the history of the united states warts and all so you're gonna love this check it out first though big thanks to my uh sponsor louisville cabinets and countertops for helping us bring this podcast to you it is labor of love and we love louisville cabinets and countertops they actually did a fantastic job on my kitchen in Kentucky before we uh, moved. We actually had, they they did the work a couple years into our house there, and so we got to enjoy it for three years, and it was beautiful and wonderful, and and I like to entertain, so it really kind of opened up the house. We had a problem with the island, and it was all funky, and you couldn't use it right, and uh, Tim came in and just fixed it. Just fixed it. Nailed it. Um, So, and then they did our master bathroom, too. And then we sold the house when we moved to Colorado, and it was like, bam! Less than 24 hours, we had two offers. It's crazy. Keep me kidding me. And I think that the kitchen played a role in that. Right. Obviously, it was a beautiful home. We have very nice area. Uh, In fact, we had a little over an acre. So it was a great, great lot backed up to a horse farm. Those things were all selling points. But when you walk into a house and the kitchen is already done and it's already beautiful, dude, people are like, give me the contract. I'm going to sign. Right. So we got asking price, which is awesome. So check it out, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. They have three designers on staff, uh, George, Michelle, Kelly. They will all help you out in designing your fabulous, fabulous dream kitchen. You want to see their work? Head on over to 6200 Hit Lane, right on the border of Oldham and Louisville. And you can actually walk in, and they'll show you some examples of their work. They have kind of a gallery set up so you can see it. And then you can go to their Louisville Cabinets and Countertops website, LouisvilleCabinetsandCountertops.com, and check them out there. And uh, you can also call them at 502-930-3304, 502-930-3304. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer or a contractor, they have cabinets, high quality, affordably priced, beautiful cabinets in stock. Check them out on the website to see all the styles that they have. So check that out. All right, big thanks to them. Now, let's get to our conversation. We start with our dogs, and then we end up, I think, with a recipe for rotisserie chicken. You're going to love this. Now, Josh Crawford from the Pegasus Institute.
0: He had demodectic mange when we got him, and so he had some of the hair loss. But so he's mostly black with a little bit of white on his chest and on his paws. Okay. Um. And but because of the demodectic mange, he had no hair around his eyes, no hair around his snout. So it looked like he was wearing a ski mask. Oh yeah, that's and hilarious. So, <laughs> and so we went with
1: Bandit. So what's funny is okay. So our Bandit, uh, we have no idea what she is. Um. But she has she's all white. With a little brindle ring around the base of her tail and a brindle mm-hmm. mask over both eyes, literally like a bandit mask. So exactly what yeah, you're yeah. talking about. So that's why we named her Bandit too. That's funny. Yeah, that's two, funny. Yeah, kudos for having two pit bulls. People have given that dog a very bad reputation, and it's ridiculous because um, pit bulls go as their owners go. Uh, I'm here to tell right. you, they they are fine dogs, and uh, yeah, you know that's cool. So how did you come across one that had um? like the mange, like what did you, was it a stray or was it a rescue or like what, what, how did that work out? Yeah.
0: So we adopted Penny. Um, we adopted Penny the day after bar results came out. So, um, Kristen and I went to the shelter the, the day of bar results and just kind of played with a couple of dogs. Cause we were thinking about getting one. And we're like, we're not going to get one until we know what bar results are. Because, you know, like, Let's say this doesn't work out. The last thing we need is to to bring an animal in the situation. Right. You're talking about um, your law so, degrees, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so the very next day uh, after, after bar results, Kristen was like, we have to go back and get that dog. <laughs> and so we, you know, like the shelter opened at like eight. And so we, uh, we were there at like eight Oh two kind of thing and adopted Penny. And we were doing classes with her. Um, her name wasn't Penny. She was left behind by some owners who, who uh, had moved and kind of left her behind kind of thing. And yeah. neighbors brought her in. And so we adopted her. And so we were doing like basic obedience classes and stuff like that. Cause she didn't really have any of it, you know, is a, is an incredibly sweet dog, but didn't know sit, didn't know any of that kind of stuff. So we were doing those at the shelter and they had found two strays who were puppies and they they found just the two puppies no mom around no no other siblings around and they brought them in and the one had been adopted and the other one hadn't and so kristen had seen him on the website and the trainer in the class was talking about him and so kristen was like why don't we just like let him and penny meet and we'll you know if they get along great and if they don't then we'll just move on right well well they got along great And it was one of those things where it was like the second I caved on interacting with him at all, the dog was coming home. Right. And so he, uh, he came home, but yeah, he had, he had been astray. Uh, he had, he had had the mange from, from the time that they had found him. And so we just had to do like these, uh, oral injections and stuff like that for a couple of months and it all cleared up.
1: That's cool. I, I love stories like that. Ours, all three of ours are rescues. Um, and we've been talking about like getting, kind of a pure breed but then the more we think about it the more we like we've always just been attracted to misfits and you know rejects because those are the best animals they they are you know they're rejected because their people don't know how to deal with animals and that's been the case with ours that once we took them in um you know there was there was just a, a way you know you, you they they bond with you and it's there's there there are, I don't think I think there's very few lost cause animals in my opinion just just my opinion but right, right. Um, well lots to talk about today I want to talk about some uh, statistics that you guys have coming out regarding the uh, rise in homicide rates in the city of Louisville and and this is kind of a national phenomenon as well as we have defunded police we are seeing numbers of uh, violence go up that's a serious case up in Minneapolis where there's, mm-hmm. you know, been a big effort to defund the police. And, um, now there, there are citizens there that are calling for more police because the murder rate's so high. I want to get to that before I do though, this is a fascinating and kind of a funny story, uh, that I came across. You and I've been kind of texting about it cause you're a Penn state alumni. Um, mm-hmm. so Penn state has joined the ranks of the woke universities that are just absolutely, um, Having the vapors over words like freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior, and they've they've canceled those words, and they're now going to replace them with pronouns. You know, obviously they, them, theirs, using non-gendered terms like student and staff instead, because they want to get away from the, um, as CBS describes it, the typical male-centered world and rid college materials with a strong male-centric binary character. So um, I, I have a feeling that this is going to save the next generation of young people, that that being protected from being called a fresh man is definitely going to save the next generation of young feminists. And uh, it's probably what America needs right now, don't you think?
0: Um, you know, uh, I think that there's a strong case that That's all that's been holding America back. Right. Um,
1: and certainly women, that's yeah. for sure.
0: <laughs> well, you know, the, the funny thing for me, uh, before we get into the sort of serious side of this, is I don't think I've ever heard freshmen and emphasize the man part of it. Yeah, right. You know, like... It, it, it's one of those things where it just never occurred to me that man was even a part of that word right. until someone points it out. Right. Like and most people don't even say it, say fresh man, right. The way you did, right. It's freshman. It might as well be fresh M N or M I N or something like that. Right. 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 And so, um, but, but it's important for the listeners to understand where this comes from. Right. Because I think it's very easy to look at this, roll your eyes and say academia is going to academia um, look at this ridiculousness and kind of move on with your life. And in some sense, that should be the appropriate response, right? The appropriate response is to say, this is ridiculous and to treat it like it's ridiculous. But that this is not this is not the academic left just doing things for the sake of doing things, right? The, the postmodern worldview says, first and foremost, that language must be deconstructed in order for power structures to be deconstructed. And so necessary to the accomplishment of their goals of tearing down the patriarchy, of tearing down structures of systematic oppression and so on and so forth, is the deconstruction of language. It's why if you have very liberal postmodern friends on social media, they put these gobbledygook posts up where it's like none of those words belong together Right. None of it makes sense together, word salad. but it's exactly it's it's this sort of uh, uh, Jared calls it liberal word salad. But it really is the postmodern left. Mm-hmm. These people really aren't liberals the way we think of liberals. Right? Right, right. And I don't just mean classical liberals in the sense of the Enlightenment, but I mean, American progressive liberals. Right. right. The, the postmoderns really are a different breed. Yeah. And so uh, necessary to their worldview is this kind of 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 action. And the problem and you and I have talked about this, I think both on and off the podcast before, is that it preys on people's uh, best impulses, right? Yeah. Uh, and nobody wants to be a sexist. Nobody wants to, to, to make female students feel worse than their male counterparts. No one wants to be a racist. And so when folks come along and say, this is how you show that, that's how you get a vote in the Penn State Faculty Senate, which I think was like 125 to 13 or something like that. Right. Because I I don't believe that 125 faculty members actually feel strongly about this. But I believe that there is a number of faculty members that feel strongly about this and sort of strung along the rest of their colleagues by saying, this is how you prove that you're not sexist. This is how you prove that you're not a misogynist. Mm -hmm. This is how we create a a 21st century university. And it's utter nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Um, And so it ought to be dismissed As ridiculous because it is ridiculous but it also needs to be confronted and and taken down and it really needs to be confronted and taken down by our reasonable friends on the left Uh, and there are some in academia who are are beginning to to stand up I point to that Harper's letter all the time Mm -hmm. that was signed on to to by people who have never voted for a Republican in their life um, want your taxes higher want abortion on demand uh, but ultimately agree to the same set of rules that we agree to on how we ought to govern ourselves and how we ought to to settle disputes. Um, and so it it really needs to be pushed back on.
1: I, I fully agree with this, uh, what you said. I mean, I think it I was guilty of dismissing this early on as just being silliness, but it's not and it's not about leftism or le- or I should say it's not about, you know, liberalism as we used to think of it. To your point, I get along with liberals. Like people who have a completely different world view than me about the size of government, like you said. Mm-hmm. About things like, you know, abortion and those things. I don't agree with them. But I have several very good friends that believe those things. But those good friends are not running around trying to cancel people who disagree with them. I get along with liberals. What this is is something I think far more insidious. And it and it like you said, it preys on people's best um impulses and it also uses a very it's a very insidious approach you know virtue signaling is something we tend to like to laugh at but to your point about that vote I I would I would hazard a guess that at least half of those professors voted yes like you said not because they believed in this but because they needed a virtue signal and they were afraid of the consequences if they didn't and right. so, so the insidious thing here is, like you said, it is about deconstructing power structures. But from your perspective, and I think I know what the answer is, but I'd like to hear you talk about this. What is the end goal once you have fully deconstructed the so-called patriarchy? Um, in my opinion, let's translate that to it's not patriarchy. It's the free markets, right? It's anybody having any ability to be successful over um you know uh, or 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 rise above or whatever you want to call it you know to be able to build wealth that someone else doesn't accomplish that kind of thing right what is the yep. end goal of deconstructing the quote unquote power structures cuz they say it is to free the oppressed again something all of us want to make sure happens however we have generations of evidence showing that free markets do more to free the oppressed than anyone else. But in your mind, what is the end goal?
0: So um that's that's what makes postmodernism so insidious is that the goal is only to deconstruct and destroy. There is no alternative um way of ordering life that they are proposing. Um there's a, a website that allows you to make sort of customized make America great again hats. And I have one sitting in a cart that I'm probably going to, to, to buy, but I will be among a very small group of people that find it funny. And it's make the Academy Marxist again. And <laughs> the, the reason for that, right, is that Marxists had a worldview that they wanted to create. Right. They, they said um, there is truth. And in fact, the bend of history and truth are on our side. Mm-hmm. I think that that adherence to truth and that adherence to an alternative worldview is why many of the brightest thinkers on the right of the late 20th century were former Marxists, right. because Marxist, Marxism appealed to a lot of their emotional impulses, but it's, a, it's an ideology that, that believes in truth, and so it, it requires you to examine truth, and a lot of folks end up rejecting it because it doesn't add up, and so some of our brightest intellectuals were former Marxists because they had that truth component. The problem with postmodernism is that it doesn't believe in truth, and so it only destroys. It destroys literature. It destroys government institutions. It destroys private institutions. It wants to destroy religion. It wants to destroy the free market system. Not because it has a plan to replace them with something better, but because they know that the way things are is just a reflection of power structures that need to be torn down and destroyed. And that's what makes it so dangerous, is because when, when there is no objective truth, Um, then there's no argument to be had. There's no, well, I think this says this and you think it says that. Let's examine it and try to find out. When you reject the scientific method in favor of uh, personal experience, then there is no arguing with personal experience, especially your own perception of personal experience, right? Um, That's actually not what happened to you. This is, I may have felt that way and I'm sorry that it felt that way, but this is how that actually played out is irrelevant if all that matters is how you perceive the world, right? right? Um, and so that's what makes postmodernism so dangerous is that they really don't have a a, a Marxist utopia on the other so, side of this. There is only destruction.
1: So what? why Why engage in it? Because, okay, and, and I understand, I, and I, I imagine you probably agree with me on this, but I think that the vast majority of the quote-unquote postmodern soldiers, these are the people that are organizing Antifa. These are the people that are... Uh, organizing around this kind of thing at colleges, et cetera. These are the 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 rank and file, so to speak. People who, like you said, probably have these good intentions, right? Like they think I'm I'm liberating the oppressed. That is a fantastic goal in life, right? Like like I'm saving lives. That's awesome, right? If that's your goal, but I think that's one group. But I also think there's the Organizers, the uh, instrument pullers, the, the the string pullers, they are the ones that are pushing this. What is their logic? If they don't have a plan for the aftermath, what is their logic? Is it anarchy? Are they truly just anarchists, or do they have? I mean, what what's? I I, I hate to say it, but it's just, it's really. It's difficult to deal with something that doesn't have a goal, right? Like that's like the hardest thing to deal with. If you get attacked by somebody who doesn't care about what they lose, right, that's the most dangerous person in the world, right? And right. so so, so is that it? Do they just not care what they lose? Do they just not care what becomes of American society? Do they just not care what becomes of, of poor people in a society where rule of law is completely devolved and it becomes a Mad Max world? I mean, what is – what is their goal or why do they do it? What's their logic?
0: Yeah, so I, I think there's – you address two groups of people. The first group of people, which is the, the people who do care and the people for whom they've been fed this is the avenue of making life better, that's a group that I think can be convinced otherwise. That's a group that I think right. ultimately can be reasoned with. And, and probably and find, probably
1: naturally does once they get out of that environment and set up right. in the real world. They, they eventually bend back towards sanity.
0: Yeah. The, the other group though, which are, are really the academic postmoderns, right? And again, this is not, this is not your average chemistry professor. It's not even your average professor in the social sciences necessarily. Uh, but they are, there is a disproportionate number of postmoderns in the academy relative to, uh, sort of society at large, you know, ideological postmoderns, these critical theories, critical race theory, intersectional feminism, fat studies, these kinds of things that, uh, James Lindsay and, and Helen Pluckrose talk about in their book, Cynical Theories. But uh, that group really uh, emerges after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Postmodernism as a theory existed before then, but it really gains academic popularity in the United States after the fall of the Soviet Union. And the reason it gains popularity after the fall of the Soviet Union is all of those folks who were Marxists and had this uh, like utopian philosophy that if if the people owns the mean owned the means of production etc cetera, etc cetera, we would be better saw that dream fall apart right there the the great marxist experiment in the soviet union collapsed and collapsed completely and entirely uh without i mean the, it left no doubt right there was no like oh if, if just this thing had broken the other way we'd still be here kind of thing i mean it, it it completely undercut the idea of of a Marxist, socialist, communist economic structure. And as more and more information came out about the human rights atrocity, atrocities of the Soviet Union, it really started to, to darken that utopian worldview. And mm-hmm. so the way that the academy responded to that, that, certain sections of the academy, I should say, responded to that was not to say, wow, Marxism was wrong. We should reevaluate uh, how we feel about free markets and separation of powers and government institutions, et cetera, et cetera. It was to say, "Wow, if that's not true, then there is no truth." Wow. Yeah. And so, and so that ends up working its way into certain departments uh, at elite universities. It ends up sort of merging with uh, this sort of like activist culture within the humanities uh, around certain disciplines, and we get this sort of like unholy alliance of what now are the critical theories. And, and again, uh, I think I may have mentioned this on a podcast before, but if, if your listeners haven't read, uh, James Lindsay and Helen Fluckrose's book, they, they yeah, really should. Yeah. It's, it's a fantastic dissection of all of this um, and I'm not yeah. getting paid to say that. <laughs>
1: um, so. Well, and, and they've made some appearances on, uh, Joe Rogan's podcast and it's, yep. it's worth listening to because, um, you know, it's, it's, it, they're the real deal and they are liberals and they are leftists I mean when you talk about it from the the not not I, I want to be careful to say not classical liberal because I am a classical liberal <laughs> right I am I am in that sort of Jeffersonian vein it's a you know when you really study uh, it's kind of funny when you go back and look at Thomas Jefferson for instance uh, which apparently we can't do on college campuses now right because uh, anyone right. who was ever flawed in the past uh, is now no good to us which is a very convenient thing. When you look at the the um, let's dive into the founding fathers for a second here. I, I just felt I feel a rabbit trail coming on, Josh. Sorry. Yeah. But when when you when you look at people like John Adams, James Madison, and others, um, or I said John Adams, sorry, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, wh- the the context of those times, I don't think people appreciate how radical these guys were. Right? Like liberals should love them. I mean, Jefferson founded the Democratic Party, right? I mean. Mm-hmm. Liberals should love these guys. They they were they you talk about upending a system. You talk about upending the ultimate historical human patriarchy, <laughs> down with the king. Right. Right? Yep. You know what I mean? So when you when you look at, at, at the context of the times, and and I've read a lot about Jefferson because he is my favorite president. I've been to Monticello. Um fascinating man, both in and out of politics. But the thing that was I think most interesting about him was that he was he was damn near an anarchist in a lot of ways, you know, not, he he was very enlightened in terms of that civil aspect of it, but he was damn near an anarchist when it came to government, government's role in our lives. um, You know, that kind of thing. And again, flawed people in flawed times, but when we're a hundred years from now, we're going to look back and say, look, those people in the 2020s were flawed people in flawed times. Right? So I, I I don't know. I, I just, I feel like I'm like, Again, this is a bit of a rabbit trail to this point, but you have to have context to learn from history and then build on history. And that's what I don't understand this whole idea that we should completely wreck it. And so that's that's the classical liberal, you know. Right. Um rabbit trail there is that as a classical liberal, I want liberty. The root of that word right. is liberty. I want liberty. I want liberty for everyone. I want every man, woman, child to be able to pursue their dreams. Um right. and and I get very I get very offended when i come across someone who is trying to deconstruct that concept not saying that america has ever been perfect and it never will be but the system that was devised is as close to a perfect system that mankind can possibly devise because right. it allows for those arguments those debates those 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 philosophy uh you know th- that that kind of discussion and dialogue to You know, I I always thought it was brilliant how some of our founding fathers, as I understand it and have read, Jefferson included, and again, flawed times, flawed people, whatever, didn't like the institution of slavery. And it seems as though they almost set up the founding documents of America, knowing that at some point, you know, they couldn't cobble this coalition together to defeat the monarchy without everybody on board. But they sort of knew that there was a reckoning coming. Right. And they set up the system to allow for that reckoning as hard as it was as in in terms of the civil war and then that the civil rights movement and all those things moving forward, this was all part of the plan, so to speak. Right. And I mean, they, they maybe didn't think about it like specifically, but you understand what I'm saying, allowing us to get down and dirty and have these, these tough debates, women's suffrage, so on and so forth. You know, that kind of stuff doesn't happen in any other kind of political system than the one that we have. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things to, to unpack there. The first, I think, is to, to really unpack how different the slavery question was in the United States. Because, look, you're right as it relates to women's suffrage, as it relates to, to civil rights, as it relates to voting rights for for black Americans. Um, but we, we did fight a war uh, in order for slavery to end, yes, right? And yes. uh, obviously the, the Civil War... Uh, involves things other than just the slavery question, but the slavery question is at, ultimately at the forefront. And we go from a nation where where half of the country has legalized chattel slavery to a country where there is no legalized chattel slavery on the other end of it, right? But it took a war. Uh, in in that sense, the institutions broke down, and the only way we were able to solve that question was with a remarkable amount of violence. Right. And that is in part because um, how indispensable... Uh, the system was to part of the country and the, uh, culture and rhetoric that revolved around, um, slavery post the declaration of independence and the constitution, right. Um, to, to understand what led to, and this is one of the problems with things like the 1619 project, right? Right. Slavery in the United States, pre declaration and constitution is really a, a racially neutral system. Um, it's largely a system of indentured servitude. There are white indentured servants, there are black indentured servants. There are a couple of court cases in the South that make it more difficult for blacks to, to gain their freedom and things like that. But it really isn't until post declaration, post constitution, that slavery becomes a race centric institution. And part of that is because of the great hypocrisy of fighting a war for liberty, setting up documents that uh, encase liberty both in structure and in rhetoric and then having a system of chattel slavery, right? Right, How do you justify a system of chattel slavery when you've just fought a war and declared via your founding documents the fundamental rights of human beings? Right. Well, the way you do that is to say that the the people that are in bondage are in fact, they aren't human, they're subhuman, Right. right? And so that leads us to a point where in a lot of ways, the only way that question is ever going to come to the end is if one side prevails ultimately over the other. But uh, that is truly the exception to the rule in the United States of America. On virtually every other question, we have been able to peaceably uh, work out our differences, and it hasn't been perfect, but it's been about as, as, as close as you could hope. Um, all of that is to say there are two things about history that every, each and every one of us needs to remember. The first is that someone's accomplishments ought not uh, erase their uh, defaults, right? And that someone's defaults ought not to erase their accomplishments, right? right. Yeah, I percent, think yep. it is, I think it's entirely acceptable and and really proper to look at what Thomas Jefferson did, uh, it, both in terms of the Declaration of Independence and uh, his time as president, and the fact that he was a slave owner. Um, and, and say, this is who this person was, right? You you look at some of that in the context of history and all of that. And you say, we have a more complete picture of who this person was. The flaws don't take away from the accomplishments and the accomplishments don't erase the flaws. Right. And the problem is, is that that people seem Mm -hmm. to really want it one way or the other, right? Thomas Jefferson was either a person with no flaws and we can excuse away everything bad he ever did. Um, and that's not just true of slavery. It's, it's true of Alexander Hamilton's infidelity. It's, it's true of Benjamin Franklin's behavior all, all day, every day. Um, you know, and so there's no reason to not have a more complete picture of these people, but it's also entirely acceptable to say flawed human being. It was awful that he owned slaves, but the declaration of independence is probably the most important document in Western civilization. Right. You know, like it's, it's. you can have your cake and eat it too. Here, right? We should have this more complete picture of history. Uh, folks should be exposed to and understand the horrors that were not only chattel slavery, but uh, the existence of of blacks in America during the Jim Crow era. Right? Mm-hmm. Like all of that stuff can coincide with the fact that that a structure exists that allows a, allowed us in virtually every instance to work through those questions. With with relative peace.
1: Yeah. I Well, I want to I want to kind of go back and underline something there, because and, and this is this. I agree with what you've said. Um, And to, to the point on Thomas Jefferson, don't you think, though? That he knew that there was a conflict within himself and I'm not justifying it again, I I fully agree with you. I think that's the thing is like I think we have to start with this is this is one of the things I I kind of laugh when I watch some of the political debates that unfold. We have to start with the recognition that every one of us is a hypocrite on some level. Right. Every single human being that has ever lived with the exception of Jesus, every single human being that has ever lived, and every single human being that will ever live is a hypocrite on some level. The best we can do is to be intellectually honest about that hypocrisy and do everything we can to minimize and weed it out. Okay, That's the best we can do. So on some level— Guys like Thomas Jefferson had to have seen the irony in what they were writing, right? Right? I mean, don't you think? they had? I mean, there had to have been, because I can't, I still have a hard time wrapping my head around because I'm so, I'm so, what is the word I want to use here? But I'm so passionately for liberty for everyone, and I so passionately view the value of every human being, regardless of where they come from, as being equal under God's eyes. Now, our talents are all different, and it doesn't have anything to do with race. It just has to do with individuality. You know, but in terms of value of people, every single person is as valuable and is loved by God as every other person and so on and so forth. But when when I when I think down these lines, I can't wrap my head around how anybody could ever think that it's okay to own a human being. And that goes back not just in American slavery, but it goes back to. Uh, Native American tribes here in the in what is now the United States at that time would enslave their enemies. Um, Slavery is a thing that has gone throughout human history. So long as one person could dominate another, it's been a thing. And yet when you believe when you when you believe when you have the, the worldview of liberty, liberty first. Right. I mean, that's the principle first is always liberty. Uh, It's it's almost impossible to wrap your head around how anyone could ever think that it's okay to claim ownership of another human being. And so one of the fascinating things about that time in America's founding was that there was this hypocrisy. And thank God they were hypocritical on the side of actually writing something that sort of called themselves out for what they were doing in reality, right? You know what I mean? I mean, thank God they... They wrote those documents the way they did because it allowed for, even though it was a violent upheaval in the process, they allowed for us to fix it and still keep the system. Right. Uh, I don't well, know if that makes sense. but
0: No, it it does. And I think what that really demonstrates is how unprecedented the idea of a nation founded on liberty was. Right. Right. Like we, we have the benefit of hindsight. We, we live in a world where most Western democracies are, or most Western countries are, uh, are are democratized almost completely. Most of the world uh, is is a lot more liberty loving than it was at the time of the founding. I mean, even some of the more oppressive regimes today right. would have been your more libertarian regimes in the past. Right. That's that's how unique and different the idea of liberty as a guiding principle was at the time. Right. In contrast to an institution like chattel slavery, which to, to your point has been with us since the dawn of humanity. And so in some ways by leading with Liberty, it forced this conflict with the question of slavery and a number of other things. Right. And, right. and we're still having some of these conversations today, right. but, um, if, if we truly do value the individual, if we truly do, uh, believe that the individual is, uh, as equal and as deserving, uh, in the eyes of God as anyone else, then an institution of chattel slavery doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. Um, the ability to own a human being doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so it in some ways, the the tone and tenor of the Declaration and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights forced that question in a way that if they had devised a constitutional monarchy or something like that, uh, would not have necessarily been forced. Right.
1: I guess that was kind of my point in that what they wrote, whether they meant to or not, set up the chessboard for what, for what would ultimately as hard as it was, make us a little more towards close, close, a little closer to perfect, something we can never reach. Right. Right. Those words, all it took was for people to begin to sort of become enlightened and realize, wait a minute, those words are for everyone, you know, and ultimately, um, you know, human beings are going to see that hypocrisy, and and they're going to move towards the right side of things, hopefully, and that's that's what sure. happened, and that and that's that is why. But I, I, the other thing, you know, when you said the ability to actually look at somebody and determine that their flaws don't, you know, up in their accomplishments and vice versa, I think that is so right. You know, I I'm I'm a deeply patriotic American. I love my country, but I grew up on an Indian reservation, and I have seen through the eyes of what our government has done to Native Americans. And I have made a study of a lot of what the atrocities that the American government did to Native Americans, even after the institution of slavery was banned. The right. the, the the mistreatment. And I, my wife and I visited um, the battlefield uh, Little Bighorn in Montana a couple of years ago. And it, it like the, they, there was this park ranger there, and he was so great because he kind of encapsulated what you said. He just told the story as it happened, you know, and you're like, damn, Custer was a jackass, right? You know what I mean? I mean, it's like, but, but he told the story as it happened. He didn't sugarcoat Custer and he didn't, he didn't uh, malign him, right? He didn't sugarcoat the native Americans and he didn't malign them. He just said, this is what happened in this place. Here's what led up to it. Here's what was the context. I can walk away from that feeling ashamed, of what my government did and still be mm-hmm. an incredibly proud American. And as we drove through the battlefield, it was Fourth of July when we visited, as we drove through the battlefield, there were markers where all the people had fallen, the Indians and the the uh Calvary. And on each one of the markers was an American flag. And that yep. that to me was like a that was like a really cool moment, right? Because it's like I can sit here and go, I cannot believe our government did this now if you if you examine the times the reason why that was a supported thing nationally was because the media hello was mm-hmm. writing sensationalist stories that skewed towards the settlers and the military and the back east everybody that was you know the the, the vast majority of quote unquote the populated part of our country was getting a false story. They were getting stories that said, "Oh, look, these Native Americans—they're—they're they're scalping people and they're attacking and you know they're—they're they're ripping people apart." Right? They didn't tell them that they were doing some of those things in retaliation for the same things being done against them. Right? So right, there right. was a whole country that was on board with some of the things that were that happened because they weren't getting the full story, you know. Right. So again, it's right. it's it's like this is like a story that pulls out like how important context is, how important history is, and how we can, like you said, we can be totally proud of our flawed nation and say, hey, this system set up a, a situation where more people have been lifted out of poverty and oppression than any other system in the history of mankind, and yet even we have these massive warts. I didn't mean to go on a diatribe, but to your point. Like, that kind of brings it all home for me. That visit to Little Bighorn was like, you know, I am super interested in how horribly we treated the Native Americans. That doesn't make me not a proud American. It makes me ashamed of certain episodes in our nation's history. Right. Like that, like slavery, like not allowing women to vote, so on and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, You
0: you don't need to pick one. Uh, And, in fact, the the documents and the institutions themselves are set up to understand that we would, we would always try to do better the next day. Yeah. And again, that's what makes this so problematic is that rather than point to something and say, hey, we're supposed to do better the next day, they say, let's tear it all down.
1: Right, right, yeah, that's a great point, yeah. And then you, then you start over and you don't have a system that necessarily allows you to do that. You become China by exactly. accident. All right, the main right. reason, at 36 minutes in, let's talk about what I really had you on for. <laughs> Uh, I love stuff like this, and I and we need more conversations like this, I think, in America, where people yeah. just kind of get down in the nitty-gritty and, and work their way through these things. But you guys at the Pegasus Institute, and I encourage everyone to check out your website. It's Pegasus.org. Or wait, it's PegasusKentucky.org. I always forget that. Um, That's correct. Yeah, check out the website and your podcast, because there's an enormous amount of informative things that you guys are doing. But you've been studying the murder rate in Louisville, and you guys have some information that you've— have you announced it yet, or is it about to be announced?
0: Yeah, so we, we've got some stuff that was released late last week. we will okay. get some more stuff that's released over the next couple of days. Um, but the sort of too-long-didn't-read version is uh, just how bad uh, the last half decade, really the last six years, right. have been in Louisville. Um, Louisville is a city— that uh, saw less than 70 murders a year, most years. And obviously that's 70 of our neighbors, 70 of our friends, 70 fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. And that's atrocious. Uh, but since about 2015, or since 2015 exactly, uh, we've been well above that each and every year. Um, a low year during that period is is 85 homicides. And so we're talking 90, 100 plus. Uh, we have twice during that time period set the all time record for homicides in the city's history. Jeez, yeah. And that's not, that's not the result of a large influx of population and the rate being the same, but we just have more people kind of thing. Uh, it is a, an, an absolute increase and a rate increase. And unfortunately we're on pace again this year to surpass last year, which would, again, set the all-time record for a third time in, wow. in the last six years.
1: Jeez. Um, and the the push to defund the police, although I will say that um, Mayor Fisher has largely resisted that in a lot of ways. Um, it's not to claim praise on him because um, he's also wasted a lot of money on things that didn't have anything to do with the safety and security of the people of Louisville. Um, but... There still is this push nationwide and it's like when you see those numbers, it makes no sense to have less police. What it makes sense to do in terms of police reform, because I actually agree that after the George Floyd thing, I mean, I think a lot of people needed to reexamine the way they look at stuff. Um, And and I want to make this very clear. I'm fully supportive of the vast majority of our law enforcement officers because i just think that the vast majority of them don't get up every day and say how can i oppress my community like that's just not what they do right but there are there are some gaps in training and there are some things you know you look back I, i can't remember the the person's name but there or where this happened but there was the lady that um thought she was holding a taser and ended up shooting a guy in a traffic stop um there was a couple of cops in uh, Virginia that pulled over a military guy, a medic in the military, and forced him to get out of the car. It was a very embarrassing situation. And so there's clearly some gaps in training. And and I like what Jocko Willink said on Joe Rogan's podcast about how there needs to be an investment in training to where he wasn't comparing police to Navy SEALs. But if the Navy SEALs train 20% of the time and deploy 80% of the time or vice versa – That's really not a bad model for looking at how we deal with policemen or police training is like maybe we set up a model where it's like at least 20% of the time or 40% of the time or whatever you want to call it, they're training and, you know, that, that, but you got to have money to do that. And you also have to pay these guys because right now they're getting, I don't know who would want to be a cop, right? you know?
0: Right. I mean, that's that's the problem, right? Do you you know what they did in Colorado? Do
1: you know what they did in Colorado? This is my understanding in Colorado. They passed a law where police officers, if they get sued, it was to get rid of that, you know, limited liability thing, which on one hand kind of makes a little bit of sense because you don't want to encourage people with authority to do things that abuse that authority. But get this. They're now responsible. If a lawsuit comes, they are responsible for the first twenty five grand. What person in their right mind, knowing where lawsuits are flying around, anytime they actually have a situation, is going to work in a city that has a lot of situations when they could, through the course of 10 years, be out hundred grand when they're not paid that much to begin with because they got sued four times because they maybe didn't act exactly right in a split-second decision? Who's going to do that? Who's going to take that job?
0: well that's that's the problem with so much of this conversation right uh, and you've hit on two of the really important points the first is most of the way that we're going to fix this is going to require a lot of money it's going to require more money than we spend right now and so to fund the police is antithetical to actually improving the situation of police community relations and part of that is because you're right especially here in Louisville and uh, there are examples all over the country, but especially here in Louisville, we undercompensate law enforcement officers for what they're expected to do, yeah, right? And so, yeah. ag- again, the the legacy uh, young man whose father was a, a cop and his, his dad served, or his grandfather served in the military and there's this culture of public service that he grew up in, is going to find the department that is going to compensate him well enough um, and that's not Louisville today, right? right? And right. so the... The, the person who wants to really get out there and serve is still going to become a law enforcement officer. They're just going to do it in an environment where uh, they feel supported and there's adequate compensation and all that was kind it, of stuff. Wasn't, so it, um, part-
1: wasn't it uh Shepherdsville that was <laughs> poaching a lot of Louisville police because they were like, Hey, we'll pay you benefits and we won't beat you up. You know. <laughs> oh like- yeah.
0: Look, <laughs> the, the, the chief down in Shepherdsville is a, is a cop's cop, right? right? I mean, he's it, he's got his officers back uh, if they make good faith mistakes. But at the same time, I don't believe that he would stand by somebody who truly did something cruel and wrong. Right. right? Right. And that's what we need from, from chiefs across the country. Right. We need, we need chiefs who will stand by law enforcement in in the instances of good faith mistakes, but that also won't stand by officers uh, who commit acts of, of cruelty. Right. Right. And so, so compensation for the officers going to cost money. Uh, The additional training is going to cost money because again, Uh, there are sort of two categories of instances that have emerged during this time period. One is acts of cruelty, and those are people who don't need to be cops. Those are people who ought to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, and we ought to get them out of the profession. The other group is people who are entrusted with split-second decision-making and either aren't qualified to make those decisions or haven't been properly trained to make those decisions. And those folks may make good officers down the line, but just have not been adequately trained and prepared For what we've asked them to do and so to get them to that point is going to cost money as well, right? Uh, The other thing is that so many of these reforms take factually accurate scenarios and just go too far Uh, you know, there is there is a problem in this country as it relates to um, Questions of fact in instances of qualified immunity and uh, for for the listeners who are not uh, sort of super into uh, the oh, case by, law around... By the way, yes. not to
1: interrupt you, but you're, when you say the uh, chief of police in Shepherdsville, it's Rick McCubbin. He's a super dude. So go ahead. Yes. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and, he, and he is. He's, um, he will stand behind his officers unless they do something bad. And then I do not right. want to be on his bad side if you've done something bad and wrong. <laughs> you <laughs> right. know what I mean? So anyway, right. sorry. I didn't mean Absolutely. to interrupt you. I was just going make to that, make that point.
0: So on the qualified immunity question, there are instances where... Uh, there are differences, in fact, so minute that any regular person would say, you should have known that you couldn't do that. Right. The fact that someone's hands were out to the side versus up, or they were in between up and out to the side is not a substantial difference in your circumstances versus this case law that says you can't do it. And so we ought to probably put some reforms in place that, that alter that some, right? So uh, you have to abide by existing law. Um, if, if it, it's not existing law, then, uh, you're immune from prosecution as it relates to, or or you're immune from civil liability as it relates to your actions. But look, if there's a case that says you can't do X, Y, Z, and you do X, Y, lowercase Z, um, then, then what you should have known that what you were doing was wrong kind of thing. Right. And so there's, there's, there's areas like this all over the the spectrum as it relates to, to law enforcement. The majority of complaints Civilian complaints against law enforcement are against a very small percentage of officers right most complaints are against repeat offenders It's not as if they're raining down complaints civilian complaints on departments It tends to be the same people who get complaint after complaint after complaint And that's probably because those are the people doing things that people don't like right, you know are there people who are spiteful and Felt like they shouldn't have been pulled over when they lawfully were, and so a guy gets a civilian complaint every once in a while. Yeah, absolutely, but that guy's not going to be a repeat offender over and over again. The guys that are, we have to find a way to deal with. Right. And for some of them, it will be retraining and and getting them to a place where they're more comfortable in their skin. But for others, it's it's about getting folks like that out of the profession. Right. Um, Chris Rock has a joke that uh, cops are like pilots. <laughs> yeah, um, they're, <laughs> just, they're just they're just. There are just some professions where you don't get to make mistakes, right? Right. right. And I think there's an element of truth in that, right? Yeah, Again, I agree. if law enforcement officers make good faith mistakes, we ought to stand by them because of the, the severity of, of what we ask them to do, because of the danger inherent in what we ask them to do. But there are other times where, look, maybe this person shouldn't be pr- criminally prosecuted, but maybe also being a law enforcement officer isn't for you. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe there's another profession that is right for you. And so all of that stuff ought to be on the table. But then you look at slogans like defund the police. You look at at the way the anti-police rhetoric has grown uh, among folks, uh, in particular on the political left. And you say if you're FOP or you're someone like me who is inclined to defend law enforcement in most of their actions, understands the necessity of law enforcement in reducing violent crime. There's not a whole lot of impetus to engage with some of these folks and say, like, let's have good faith conversations about how we move forward when you've you've got uh, Christopher Rufo has a piece in I think it's National Review about uh, Portland and these young children in Portland who have been taught to chant F the police and death to America and these kinds of things. When that's the other side of the table, there's not a whole lot of productivity that happens.
1: Right. Well, but on the other side, there's also on the on the right side, because I I, here's I think you make an interesting point, because thanks again to the mainstream media. If you notice a pattern here, we have another very important (laughs) issue in America, a very important issue that you can't have a conversation on because of how entrenched both sides are. Um, Case in point, you know, the immigration issue. Right. You can't have a you know, I've been called a racist for supporting strong borders. And I've been called a bleeding heart liberal for supporting DACA to a certain extent yep. with some reforms and 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 not necessarily deporting people who were born here, even though their parents came here illegally and not necessarily breaking those families up and having a path to citizenship, right? there, right. and, and I'm not a middle-of-the-road guy. People that know me well know that <laughs> I, I have strong right. opinions about things. But I have a strong opinion that there is actually a solution that involves bringing both sides together. But this is another right. one of those issues, right? Like I have strong sense of support for our local law enforcement. It was great. My wife and I went to a rodeo this last uh, Saturday and it was a law enforcement local rodeo It was bull riding to support the the the, the blue. And right. I had a blast there because we were surrounded by law enforcement. Everybody was cheering for them. We were loving on them and, and giving them that, that praise they deserve, you know, because we appreciate them in our community. But, As much as I support law enforcement, I do see the other side of this. And I I try to put myself in the shoes of someone who grows up in a neighborhood that's like majority-minority, being a minority, and being pulled over by a cop in today's media atmosphere, right? I can see how they feel, right? I can't feel it, but I can see it. I can see their point. And so there's got to be a place, but when you have defund the police, it's utterly stupid and rejectable at the very core of it because if you defund the police, you're going to get two things. One, you're going to get more crime, and you're going to get people that are the opposite of what you think you want as a police officer because the only one that will ever take that job is somebody who just loves authority so much that they'll take the risk, right?
0: Right. Loves authority or just really needs the job. Right. Right. Like can't get a job anywhere else. Kind of thing. Exactly. And again, neither of those are people that you want carrying a badge and a gun.
1: Right. But on the other side, we have a tendency on the right to knee jerk, react to everything and say, you know, not be, and and, and almost sort of see, see the police through blue goggles. And there's just no mistake they can make. That's not egregious. Right. You know what I mean? And it's like, at some point you have to come together and say, look, we see your point of view. You should see our point of view. Now, how can we combine these two? And it doesn't seem that hard to me, but the mainstream media won't let us do it because they want us divided into those teams and entrenched. You know, you just yeah. can't have that conversation.
0: I think that's historically true of the right, but I actually think that in the last year or so, that has been less true of the right's response to these kinds of things. And I think that's Fair in point. part because Fair point. of of the way that... that the, the George Floyd killing was so visceral, so available, so in your face. Right. And the problem really has been, so Tim Scott put forward a bill uh, probably six or eight months ago now um, that did a lot of the things that I think would be considered bipartisan in this space. Yeah, um, Certainly didn't go as far as the progressive left would like, probably went a little bit further than uh, some Republicans were comfortable with. Did not get a single vote to advance the bill from Senate That's Democrats. Insane. That is right? insane. That is insane. And, and I I don't really enjoy being partisan that way, but, but that was clearly a partisan play. And and the politics there are such that, um, there were some folks, uh, on the left side of the aisle who thought, Hey, we're going to sweep these elections and we can do what we want when we get back kind of thing. Um, little did they know that they'd come back to a hopelessly deadlocked Senate. Right. But, but that's part of the problem, right? Is that, Tim Scott really did kind of try to do that and say, we're going to go further than Republicans ever have on some of these issues before. We're going to get some of what we want, which is additional funding to law enforcement for training and recruitment and retention and those kinds of things. But look, we're going to change the way no-knock raids are done. We're going to change the way chokeholds are done. Yeah, um, We're going to answer some of these questions. And to not get a single vote to advance from Senate Democrats, I think, is discouraging to a lot of people to say, like, yeah. look, we— we kind of came to the table. We extended an olive branch on this issue in a way that we never have before, and uh, it was sort of snapped in front of us. Yeah. And so I think, I think that experience colors some of how uh, these conversations have or haven't gone. The other thing, right, is is we are living uh, the the largest crime it, or the largest murder increase in American history, twenty nineteen to twenty twenty, mm-hmm. and so um, the the ideas. Of the left that are more palpable in times of lower crime rates really aren't palpable right. right now right and that doesn't mean that the reforms that are good ideas aren't still good ideas they they are but um the the need for more money in law enforcement for better recruitment and retention for better training of law enforcement is greater now than it probably has been in the last decade right. um and so if, if this is gonna be a conversation that takes place in a meaningful way, those two realities have to be balanced, yeah. right? Yeah. We have to, and, and and what we know is that policing strategies that do both, do both, right? Like we can have our cake and eat it too here. I think this is the second time I've said this in this podcast, <laughs> but we, we can reduce homicides, reduce violence. And improve police community relations if we take the right steps to do it and the benefit is is that because you know like states is the laboratories of democracy right we got 50 different states to see how 50 different states are doing it the reality is is that policing is largely a local question Mm -hmm. and so we have hundreds thousands of communities that have done different things in policing and we know what works and what doesn't work and so if we do what works then we can have our cake and eat it too. We can improve police community relations. We can reduce some of these instances of truly egregious uh, behavior by individual officers, and we can reduce violence in our communities in a meaningful way. But the the rhetoric is such that it makes that even more difficult than it would um, in a normal year.
1: All right, so you've written several white papers on this. And before we, before we wrap up, I wish I had, you know— the bandwidth to be able to do like a two or three hour conversation, because I, there's a lot to, there's a lot to dig in here and we might need to come back in a week or so and do a part two on this and maybe just dive more into the solution side of it. But give me three. I know you've written a white, white paper on uh, self-initiated policing. We both tend to agree that we need to also take a look at the training itself and the amount of time we spend and putting money towards it. So um, we do hold, you know, we hold concealed carry holders, to a higher standard, right? Justice wise. Um but we we should also hold police to a higher standard and we do, right? So so what are the solutions that you see? You know, maybe it's self-initiated police. I don't want to take those take the fire from what you're going to say, but what what are the what are three things you think we need to do right away? And maybe on the next podcast we can dive into those and what they actually look like and how they can be instituted.
0: Sure, yeah, I I'd, I'd love to do that. But but what I'll do right now is I'll give you one word three times and that's focus, focus, focus. I mean, focus on your actual problem actors. We don't need to be casting wide nets, we need to be surgical. This is this is scalpel, not axe. Um, we need to focus our attention on what works and what doesn't and we need to focus resources into law enforcement and training. So if we appropriately focus on on the problem actors on law enforcement and on what we know works then we can actually get this done
1: yeah yeah that's good um and i i encourage people to go to your website it's pegasuskentucky.org because you have the white paper on self-initiated police activity reducing homicides there's just a ton of information that people can get on there i i can't um and i'm not paid to say this i can't tell you how valuable i think the pegasus institute is to Kentucky, but also just to dialogue in general, because we need more organizations like this that are diving into things and doing so in an educated way, in a way that's that's not partisan uh, per se, and uh, is really kind of looking for that objective truth so that we can get solutions. Because there are a lot of big problems in our society today, and, and kind of full circle back to the beginning of our conversation, the more we undermine the idea of objective truth, the less we are capable as human beings of of peacefully solving our problems together right because there has to be there has to be a starting point you know and what i think is ironic about that is that all people kind of have the same needs wants desires you know we're we're a lot more alike than we are different and yet here we are right. in a world where the media is profiting from keeping us as far apart as possible and in our separate corners and that leads to radicalism it leads to hatred. Yep. It leads to all kinds of terrible things, and it leads to no solutions. Absolutely. Well, it's good talking to you again. Gosh, yeah, we, you as well. We talked about dogs, founding fathers, uh, cancel culture, uh, the popo. I mean, that's pretty wide ranging.
0: Oh yeah, I think I think we close to hit it all. I mean, if if you want to give out a recipe right now, I think we'll we'll hit, okay. hit it all. All
1: know? right. So let me tell you what how to do a rotisserie chicken. Do you have an air fryer?
0: Uh, so you, you sent me your air fryer yeah. and I'm in the process of moving right now, but once we're in the new house, I'm buying the air
1: fryer. Okay. You sent. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to whole foods. You're going to get one of them little chickens. It needs to be like three and a half pounds or less. Otherwise it won't okay. fit in that, re- that air fryer. So you get one of the okay. little organic chickens. It's a whole chicken. You take that, you stick that rotisserie through it and you want to take it, coat it in olive oil and then you want to pat it with this seasoning combination. Are you ready? I'm you ready. Want, you want paprika, smoked paprika garlic okay. salt, onion okay. salt, okay, and just a little bit of chili powder. Okay, So combine those, and maybe a little parsley if you just want to goose it up a little bit, and stick it in yep. the air fryer. I think it's 400. I'll have to text you this, but I think it's 400 for 55 minutes. Now, yours might be 45 or 50 minutes because I live at 6,000 feet. So right, there's, right, okay. there's a little yep. bit of difference in cooking time as a result of that, but somewhere between yep. 45 and 55 minutes, it will be the juiciest on the inside, crispiest on the outside, most tasty chicken that you've ever had. So you eat that for dinner, take the leftovers, make a big old chicken salad of it of the it next day. There you go. We got a recipe in
0: perfect. There we go.
1: <laughs> and when are you and your lovely bride and your new little one going to come visit us in Colorado?
0: So soon, she's uh, her her two month birthday is coming up, um, so she'll get all her shots and all that kind of stuff. But uh, but hopefully shortly after
1: that. Awesome. All right, looking forward to it. Thanks, brother. Good to talk to you.
0: You as well. All right,
1: my bye friend. Bye. All right, that's Josh Crawford uh, with the uh, Pegasus Institute. Love him. Super good guy. Very intelligent guy. Very intelligent. It's funny because he's one of those guys that when he walks in the room, he's literally probably the smartest guy in the room. But you would never he would never give off the pretension of that you know it but he doesn't make you feel it you know what i mean like like i'm it's like he doesn't some people that when they walk in the room they're the smartest person in the room you're like uh, this guy he doesn't like that it's just you know it but i don't think he knows it like i don't think he knows that he's the smartest guy in the room when he walks in but he actually is uh, but he's just fun to talk to and a lot of really great stuff there. So um, that's it for today. I got some great episodes coming up. Uh, we're going to be talking to Savannah Maddox. She's got a bill that uh, she wants to uh, pass uh, that has to do with banning um, uh, banning no gun zones in the state of Kentucky. So I'm very interested to talk to her about that. We also have Jack Maxwell on the podcast this week. He is the former host of the show Booze Traveler, and he's also an actor uh, in Hollywood. He has actually, he's a good friend of mine and we did a piece. Uh, well, I, 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 sh- I, appeared on a project that he did about marijuana and the legalization of marijuana. He, uh, bat- battled and defeated cancer. Um, and in the process he came to, uh, really believe in medical marijuana. And that's something that I've been passionate about for people as well. And so, um, I had a little cameo role in a documentary project that he did and, uh, we've become good friends since then. And, um, Speaking of people that are like on the different side of the political aisle, but still love each other. You know what I mean? But he's going to we're going to talk to him about some cool stuff. Not only his battle and de- defeat of cancer, which is a super encouraging story, but also he actually has been on stage with Al Pacino in an actual play a couple of times. And um, I, I just I can't wait for you to hear the story of what it's like to act with Al Pacino. Like, right. <laughs> like, that's just crazy. Right. So we're going to talk to him. But anyway, thank you for listening. I want to thank our sponsor, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops, because they're freaking awesome. Um, I don't just say that because they sponsor the podcast. I say that because I thought they were I thought they were awesome long before they sponsored a podcast. They are. Um, I've been a customer of theirs, and uh, we had a problem with our kitchen island, and we wanted an island when we moved into this house in Oldham County. Um. That we used to live in. and uh, But this one was just awkward. It was weird. I don't know. Somebody had tried to do some work on it. I didn't know what they were doing. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, bottom line, uh, I called in Tim from Louisville Cabinets Countertops. He comes in, kind of cocks his head to the side, scratches his head a little bit. And he goes, I can fix that for you. And he did. And he made it beautiful. Uh, along with our countertops, which were quartz. We chose quartz. It's a little more expensive with quartz. But the thing I liked about it was it was worth the money because um, you actually, it's a little less maintenance than granite is. Granite can stain. You got to seal it every year, you know, blah, 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 blah. And quartz is just kind of, you know, good to go. Um, the bottom line is you're going to absolutely love Louisville cabinets and countertops, their customer service, their work ethic, all of those things, uh, are fantastic. They've got three designers on staff, George, Kelly, Michelle, they are all super excited to help you build your dream kitchen. And if you're a do it yourselfer or a contractor, they've got wonderful high quality affordable cabinets in stock as we speak and if you're just looking for laminate and they can cut that same day sometimes so just check them out 502-930-3304 502-930-3304 or Countertops.com. listen thank you guys for listening to the podcast thank you for sharing it with your friends the audience continues to grow and i'm super excited about that do share it with your friends it's a free download um, and it's at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Just search The Disruption Zone. It'll come right up, and we'll send new episodes straight out to you. Big thanks to my co-executive uh, co- producer, Cameron Mills. Big thanks to uh, JP Web Design as well as um, – our friends at uh, Dynamics Audio Productions in Lexington, Kentucky, for their audio help with the program, and a biggest thanks of all goes to you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter; it's at Leland Show and at Zone Disruption at Great Lelando on Instagram and at The Disruption Zone on Instagram. Thanks for listening. Go. See ya. Ah, ah.